we're excited that Glimmerglass, which is somewhere that a lot of Rochesterians, as well as people from all over, travel to, has a new production of your opera, Silent Night. Can you talk a bit about revisiting this work? Well, it will be interesting. Um, the production isn't entirely oh. new. Tomers Vulun developed it for Wexford Opera in Ireland a few years ago, and so we did the first production of it there. And then he also took it to Atlanta Opera, where he is the uh, artistic director. So it's not the it's not the first yeah. time, but you know I think we're still kind of working out certain things about about the staging, um, which is very different from the original production. And actually, let's perhaps start with the opera itself for those who are just discovering this. Your opera, Silent Night, tell retells the story of something that happened in real life in 1914 during World War One, but also is a beautiful story that looks to perhaps something about what it is to be in conflict and have larger forces and yet still be human individuals interacting with each other. Could you talk a bit about the story and what drew you to it? Yeah, it was um, uh, actually the idea of Dale Johnson, who um, at the time was artistic director of Minnesota Opera, to develop um, the film Joya Noël, which is a French film from 2005, set in World War I um, around the first Christmas Eve of the First World War. It's based on the, the true story of the troops in various places along the front deciding spontaneously on Christmas Eve to sort of get out of their trenches and stop fighting and share stories about their about home about, and champagne and chocolates and play soccer together um it really happened um and so the film is um is a is a sort of fictionalized account of that um which is a very beautiful film and uh, so it's set in the trenches and so you have french soldiers scottish soldiers were which were of course on the side of the french and then on the other side the german soldiers and yeah, it's a, it really is about larger forces at work, you know, the war and this thing that they're all involved in. But then what happens when you get to know your enemy? Is it possible to, to go back to killing each other the next day? That's really the big question of the opera. And it, in some ways, has this beautiful message, but in other ways, it's at least makes me sad to think because they got in trouble for it. I mean, that was, you know, they weren't rewarded for being Good people. No, no. Once their superior officers found out about it, once the information was sort of was leaked, they were sent to, you know, they were kind of split up, sent to dangerous places like Verdun. And um, so, yeah, it, it's unfortunate that it went that way, but it did. And then as you approached writing music for this story, you have different languages, characters from different countries. What are some of the ideas that you put together to bring the story together or differentiate some of these parts? Yeah, I didn't really have a, a, a plan when I started. It was my first opera, and I got the libretto, and I just started writing. You know, I didn't, I was so excited to get it and to, to sort, of, sort of, you know, dive into it that I just didn't think, okay, the French music is going to be this way, the German music is going to be this way. So it doesn't really work in that way, although I think we we decided to use the uh, the languages. So the, the piece is in actually five languages. It's in German, so the Germans sing in German, the, the um, French sing in French, and there's some Italian because the opera begins in an opera house. Two of the characters are opera singers, 
their characters are opera singers. So the first scene is is the two of them, Nicola Sprink and Anna Sorensen, uh, his his girlfriend, singing in an opera that sounds kind of like Mozart. And the opera is interrupted by an officer who comes in and says that war has broken out. And, of course, Nikolaus will be sent off to the front. So there's some Italian. There's actually some Latin, too, at some point. <laughs> so it's in it's in a lot of languages. That was kind of a daunting task to, to set all of them, especially since I had never written anything, any songs in German or French. But I think what it does is it makes it much more authentic. It makes the the distance between the soldiers and the unlikelihood of their reaching out across these, uh, uh, you know, across no man's land to, to have this truce, it makes it all the more unlikely. And there are some wonderful things that Mark Campbell did with the libretto where, you know, one of the lieutenants uh, is translating what he what one of the other lieutenants is saying um so that the other the third lieutenant can understand so we you know that that translation is actually sung in real time and it makes for a kind of an interesting duet so there are a lot of good reasons for that uh using these these uh the authentic languages but it was a you know for my first opera you know to be asked to do this massive you know <laughs> giant piece in all these languages with a big chorus and a huge cast it you know it was kind of scary but also very exciting to to dive into that uh, as my first operatic project and it is sort of like making movies something where you're making it but you're also part of this large collaborative effort that's right and that was a really um interesting part of it especially once we got it into the workshop stage and singers started working on it and the costume designers started dreaming up the costumes and the set designers were showing us what they were doing with the sets. It was something I hadn't experienced before. And I mean, that's let alone, the, of course, the collaboration with Mark Campbell and dealing with words and music and the kind of back and forth of, of that process. Um, but yeah, it was a really new experience for me, having come from the world of orchestral music and chamber music, where I'd spent the first, I don't know, 10, 15 years of my career really doing nothing for voice, very little for voice, and certainly nothing uh, in an opera house. It was actually a very exciting process just to watch it all come to life. And the moment it really finally did come to life in a dress rehearsal with all the costumes, the lighting, the the sets, the, the these cool props, you know, these little things like bayonets and cigarette packs of, and you know, pictures on the on the walls of the bunkers and... The projections too behind the uh, the set, which do did a lot for the original production too. It was such a, an amazing moment for me, and it made me want to do more of it. And as you were doing it, were there things that particularly surprised you as you were adjusting the music to all of this process? I think it was, you know, one of the the, the things that I I learned during the process was, you know, just how to, how to write for the different voice types. I mean, that's how little experience I had had. You know, where does a baritone really project over an orchestra? Where does a bass, you know, as opposed to a bass baritone or or a bass? Um, it's it's so there's so many men in the opera. You know, there are only really two women. One of them has a very very small role. I think she sings like two lines, and then the other for Anna Sorensen is a is a big role, actually a big soprano role. But I really had to learn about how to write for these voice types and how much contour in their lines 
how that kind of contour, you know, like having a line go up and down, basically, as opposed to singing kind of flat, what that would mean emotionally. That's a kind of very uh, challenging aspect of writing for voice that um, you really just, I was learning in, on the spot. And as I think about the history of opera, it is interesting that you have characters that are singers. I was thinking, oh, is that sort of, I guess, capriccio? Mm -hmm. And then actually going back to the beginning, Orfeo's a musician, and then you have a musician singing in a world where everyone's already singing. Yeah, it, well, it was inter it, it lent a lot of interesting possibilities uh, to the opera. Not only that first scene where it's kind of, in a, you know, you sort of trick the audience into thinking, oh, wait a minute, is this, because it starts out and you're hearing this thing that sounds like Mozart. You're like, wait a minute, is this the opera? <laughs> this is this the style of the opera? And then, of course, the officer comes and interrupts it and you realize it's, it, it isn't. Um, but there are other moments. Uh, there's a moment at the end of Act One where Anna sings uh, Dona Nobis Pacham uh, to all the troops because in the story she's a famous singer. They all they all would have known who she was. And to have a moment like that where they're all crowding around her, these soldiers of different um, nationalities, and having this moment where uh, she's in the middle of it all singing an a cappella Dona Nobis Pacham and, you know, then you hear bombs off in the distance. In other words, the war is still going on, even though we're having this amazing moment of humanity in the midst of all of it. And I think it was when you were writing or interviewed by NPR talking about writing symphonies, It was I was really struck by your talk about listening and the listening assignments you had as a student, actually, I think here at the Eastman School of Music in Rochester. <laughs> yeah. The yeah. so, so much listening, more than you would almost think you'd have time for, but what that does for your music education. I was wondering if there was some of that with opera as well. You know, I haven't had time to, <laughs> to, to do that. I always say, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to I'm going to listen to you know an entire. I'm going to watch an entire opera every week. I'm going to get the score, and you know watch a video of it on YouTube or something, or or get DVDs. And I never have time to do as much as I should. So there's a lot of there are a lot of holes in my in my knowledge of opera. I'm afraid to say. Um, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but I you know I as, as I approach the genre, I you know I don't feel. I, I feel I can sort of be free to, to do it the way I want to do it. And I think a lot of the influence that I bring into into opera actually comes from film. Um, I love film. I love film music. And I like the pace of film. And so I think Mark and I both, we tend to favor the kind of, you know, a, a more modern sense of pacing, um, a kind of cinematic pace to an opera, which can be challenging because you at this you know you, you you want to feel that things moving at a certain pace but on the other hand the singers need to really be able to sing and do what they do well and what they want to do and what kind of people come to hear opera singers do so there's a push and pull between those two things i think and that's something that students now at eastman school of music are starting to study more film video game new media with the beale institute yeah. and mark waters being here that probably wasn't mm -hmm. part of your studies when you were here not so much it wasn't nearly such a big part of it um we're doing i teach at the peabody institute in baltimore now and we also are developing programs for writing writing music of uh, uh, different kinds of media yeah that's not something that was i mean there was a film scoring class at, at eastman but it's a much it's a much bigger thing now, and I think it is important, you know, to train the students to be able to do that. It's, it's not a skill I have. Like, I mean, I think I could write film music. I hope to do it. In fact, it's one of the things I'd really like to do. But as far as how it would work technologically, you know, I'd, I would need some help with that. <laughs> 
So I do want to mention then also, so the opera that will be seen, Silent Night, that we've been talking about at Glimmerglass, this has gotten not only that first performance, but the all-important second, and then third, fourth, fifth, sixth, many more after winning the Pulitzer Prize as well. Congratulations. Thank you. That's like an old accomplishment now, but still kind of a nice one. (laughs) It still doesn't hurt, you know. (laughs) Um, You know, it's it's funny because uh, when I was writing the piece, you know, this all happened within like a series of like a, a like five, like a, ma- a matter of five or ten minutes. Like I got the libretto from Mark in the mail, and I put it on the piano, and I was like, my heart was racing. I was so excited to just sort of get in and you know start improvising on the piano and singing along as I improvised, and it it was happening so quickly. And I thought I had a few a few pages of it. I thought, oh, this is going really well. I, I love the, I love doing this, and I thought. Okay, I just want this to go well enough so I can get I get to do another opera. And at the same time, I was thinking, I think this is going well, but nobody's ever going to produce this opera. I mean, it's too big. It's all men, you know. Like, who's going to produce a piece that they, you know, they can't use any? There's only roles for two women. It'll be never be done at a university because that's you know never the case that you have too many men and not enough uh, women singers at, at universities. So really the the fact that it's been done so much and that there are, I think, five or six or maybe even seven productions in the next uh, year uh, is just absolutely stag- mind-boggling to me. What things have changed or do you see differently with the newer production, you know, to revisit the same work but see it staged differently? It's, yeah, I really was skeptical. Um, the biggest change is that in the original production we had a revolving set so there was one of those kind of turntables in the middle, like in Les Miserables, you know, um, and which is really dramatic, the way it's used. But then the set pieces, the different bunkers, the French bunker, the Germans and the Scottish, all were sort of pushed around that turntable in a circle. And it was a very dynamic set, very interesting. It unfortunately made a lot of noise. That's another thing that I wasn't crazy about when I had a lot of quiet transitions between scenes. Sometimes the set pieces would make too much noise and bother me, but but I really do like that production. It was a beautiful solution. What Tomer Zvulin has done is, it's all stationary. So the three armies are on different levels of of a kind of, I don't know how to describe it, just sort of different levels of a, of a set piece. And I thought, how is this going to work? But it actually, it works extremely well. Um, I think the story is told very well. He's He's been very smart in, in how he made that all all happen. It's it's easier, it's, uh, well, it's cheaper, I think, to produce. It can be done in a smaller theater as well, slightly smaller. And that production is going also to Washington National Opera in November. And you did get to write that next opera, right? Uh, Manchurian yeah. Candidate? Mm-hmm. And also Elizabeth Cree, um, so a third opera um, with Mark Campbell. And uh, yeah, and, and they're all very different, which is really, for me, I, it, I have to, that has to be the case. You know, I'm not someone who can write, you know, I, I have no desire to kind of capitalize on the success of one opera and keep writing the same opera. I just, I have no interest in doing that. So, you know, I, I want to keep doing different things. What are some things that you're working on now that are exciting? Actually, I'm doing an expansion of the piece that you described earlier, the work for Renee Fleming um, based on the letters of Georgia O'Keeffe. So we are expanding that into a piece that will include baritone, and the baritone will sing the letters of Alfred Stieglitz, who uh, was, of course, O'Keeffe's husband for, for many years. 
and they had an amazing relationship that was very well documented and in these thousands of letters that they wrote to each other um much of most of them while he was out still in New York and she was in the southwest living and working so we're we're just making that into a bigger piece we're including all of the almost i think all of the music from the original version and turning it into something that's about 50 minutes long um so that's going to go to a number of orchestras and um opera companies starting in summer of 2019 i'm writing a new string quartet uh for the Miro quartet this year and uh there's another opera that's on the horizon which i'm not allowed to talk about yet <laughs> so <laughs> um, anyway but uh so yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of good stuff and perhaps just quickly ask about a few recordings of yours that I have that I like, and they're very different ones. <laughs> um, your Symphony Number no. Four, Mission San Juan, that oh, is a really you. strikingly beautiful piece with a lot of drama in it, even though it's an mm-hmm. instrumental work. Yeah, um, you know, I, I I thought I guess when I was a student at Eastman, I, I aspired to write orchestral music. That's what my teachers, uh, who I admired and still admire very much, um, did. You know, so I I was studying with uh, Joseph Schwantner and Samuel Adler and Christopher Rouse. Um, David Liptak, Warren Benson. They, uh, so they all wrote instrumental music. They may have written an opera or, or something for voice, but it wasn't something that was really a major part of their work. And so I just didn't think of the possibility of writing operas. And so for me, you know, getting an or- orchestral premiere, especially if it could be a, a big piece, you know, a symphony, was like a, a really great thing to aspire to. So for for many years, I thought I'm going to be a symphonist and I'll write symphonies and orchestral works. And so my fourth symphony was a piece that was commissioned by a couple. um, uh, Howard Hansen is his name. No no relation to the composer. (laughs) Spelled differently. And for his wife, Carrie, they were both patrons of the Cabrillo Festival in Santa Cruz, California, which happens every summer. They commissioned a piece to be performed in Mission San Juan Bautista, a Spanish mission that was made famous by, well, for one thing, the movie Vertigo was filmed there. It's a it's a beautiful space for orchestral music, very very resonant and loud. But the piece was written for that space, and I found some of the original Native American music that would have been performed there um, before the Spanish mission was established, and I I sort of based. I never, I didn't quote any of it because I was kind of prohibited from doing that um, by descendants of of the Native Americans who were there. Um, but I kind of based the music on what I saw of of that transcribed music. So that's that's that piece. And then, sort of the very opposite, we have a recording of a piece. I don't. I wonder if you even remember. Tony Caramia has recorded your minimalist rag. I think your name is spelled wrong on the CD. No, um, it's not. It's spelled. That was the original spelling. <laughs> I changed the spelling of my name because, but you know, I mean, I don't. It's pronounced puts, and you know, P U T Z is like funny for a lot of people. <laughs> so um, anyway, um, I hope that people would pronounce it the way that. It was pronounced when I was growing up. Uh, if I change the last letter to an S, so anyway, oh. but uh, but yeah, that's a piece. Gosh, I can't believe you you have. <laughs> that's uh, that was written when I was at Eastman. I was like, I was a I don't know a freshman or a, maybe a freshman. I think maybe it was like I was 18 years old and I wrote that piece. I think. Um, 
So, but it's a piece I had first heard in minimalist music, and I kind of started improvising on the piano. Well, not really minimalist music, John Adams, which is post-minimalist. There's, you know, the influence of minimalism in it. But I started playing with the idea of a mu- music that begun, begins in a kind of minimalist texture, and eventually the elements of ragtime are, are revealed, and it becomes a full-blown rag by the end. So that's that piece. <laughs> it's really charming. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Actually, today I'm playing. We have a recording of a piece you did for, or recorded by violinist Tim Fain, a little aria mm-hmm. for violin and yeah. piano. That's so lovely also. Thank you. Thank you. And then just in our last few minutes, perhaps you have mentioned or we've alluded to that you're teaching now. What are some of the things that is interesting, are interesting about teaching or things you find yourself working on with students as they learn music? Yeah, you know, I think the the way you become a, a good teacher is by by writing yourself you know i think um just composing a lot and having experiences with things that work and don't work um and uh, over the years you also are you encounter the same issues uh, with students music um over and over so you have ways to address them so i i i like teaching it's something that i i could never without, I think. Uh, maybe it's partly because everybody in my family are teachers, so I kind of live by the academic year. I don't really, uh, you know, I don't know what I would do with myself in September if I was just home writing music. Um, but I don't, you know, I, I manage the teaching so that it's, it doesn't interfere um, too much with composing. And I learned so much from my students. You know, they're the ones who are really up to date, some of them especially, on all the music that's going on in in all over the world. Um, So often they play me things that really do get into my my style and influence what I'm doing. So it's a great, it's a great thing. And when they have successes, you know, as a lot of mine, uh, some of mine have had recently, um, it really feels amazing, very rewarding. And is there anything else you want to add about the upcoming production at Glimmerglass or anything else? Uh, no, I mean, I would say that I'm I'm really looking forward to being up at Glimmerglass. My whole family's, well, my wife and my eight-year-old son, we're all going to go up. And um, it's, a, it's a place that is really special. I mean, it's such a, a kind of beautiful s- setting for opera. And Cooperstown, you know, my son is a huge baseball fan. I mean, he knows every player. (laughs) So it'll be really fun for him to be at the Hall of Fame up there. (laughs) Kevin Putz, thank you so much for chatting with me. My pleasure. Thank you.